I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. As John Lennon and others have pointed out, love is the answer. And in the month of February, as store shelves fill up with red heart-shaped boxes of cannabis-infused chocolates, we speak with Ashley Manta, the canisexual, to hear what she thinks about the state of sex and Valentine's Day in today's disrupted world. What is a canisexual, you might ask? Well, since Ashley coined the phrase, I'll let her define it. Canisexual is a word she made up and then trademarked. It means anyone who mindfully and deliberately combines sex and cannabis to deepen intimacy and enhance pleasure. Ashley started her career counseling victims of abuse and trauma. But when she got a medical marijuana prescription to treat her chronic migraines, she visited a dispensary for the first time and was exposed to a range of products she didn't know existed. Specifically, she discovered a THC-infused sex spray that brought her to a new awareness of the power of the plant. From there, she started writing articles online, teaching workshops, expanding her practice, and trademarking herself as the canisexual. Canisexuality, she cautions, isn't just buying weed from a dealer and having sex while high. It is a deliberate practice. Let's find out more as we speak with Ashley Manta. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of Light Culture. Today, my guest is Ashley Manta, the canisexual. Ashley, you coined the term canisexual and even trademarked it. I'm going to guess it has something to do with sex and cannabis. You are correct in that (laughs) assumption. (laughs) What more do I need to know? Canisexual is a word that I made up, and it refers to anyone who mindfully and deliberately combines sex and cannabis to deepen intimacy and enhance pleasure, whether solo or partnered. And it's grown to be kind of a lifestyle brand. I didn't intend for it to be a sexual orientation, but some folks have taken it on as such, and I certainly celebrate their choices. What, what do you mean a sexual orientation? You mean you didn't the, a connotation? You mean it didn't you didn't expect it to have something to do with the physical act of sex? No, I didn't expect people to start identifying themselves as canisexual. Oh, wow! So there's a movement yeah, as in heterosexual, homosexual, oh. pansexual, canisexual. I was like, oh, that I didn't see coming. That was not my intention. But by all means, identify as however you see fit. And how about you? Do you identify as a canisexual? I do not identify exclusively as a canisexual. I am very much uh, a bisexual, pansexual person, and cannabis is just one part of my sexuality, but I wouldn't even say it's the uh, hallmark or cornerstone of my sexuality. It's, it's an enhancement. It's something that I really enjoy using, but it's not a necessity by any stretch. Uh, so when you have your workshops and talk to people about 
you know, your practice, it's not entirely about the cannabis and sex. Tell me a little bit about the workshops. Let's just start that way. Absolutely. Yeah, I am a sex educator and coach, and I've been doing that for about 12 years. And cannabis only came into my purview in about the last six years. So the first half of my career was just focused on sex, and that is still primarily sex and relationships are very much my bread and butter. The cannabis piece comes in and how I work it into my workshops is how to use cannabis very intentionally to address the things that may be getting in the way of pleasure, connection, and intimacy, and, and sexual fulfillment. And so to if you have pain with penetration or if you're struggling with uh, stress or not feeling connected with your body, how can you use cannabis really intentionally to help with those things and to enhance your experience? Um, but it's certainly not a requirement. And if somebody doesn't feel comfortable using cannabis or doesn't want to get high, they can still absolutely get benefits from coming to my workshops. Okay, so you you touch the various other other topics as well because some of it is psychological or God knows what. I've never sure. attended a workshop of this nature. People probably come in with all kinds of of you know each one is different, right? Every person is different. Absolutely, everyone's different, and and they all have different experiences. Some people have trauma. A lot of people have trauma. Some people have kids and have to integrate being a parent and being a sexual being in the world and how to find time for their partners. Um, Non-monogamy is a thing that comes up. Body confidence, living with an STI, like all of these different facets of human sexuality come into play. So what would you typically prescribe cannabis for? Uh, What kinds of conditions that, you know, by this point you've probably heard a lot of stories and know where where it would work or help as opposed to others where it might not be appropriate? I certainly have good informed guesses and, and having worked in this field for the last six years, I've learned quite a bit. However, I would never prescribe anything to anyone as I am not a doctor or a psychiatrist or a mental health professional. Um, so I, I would steer away from that kind of language. But what I might do is get curious and invite people to consider different avenues and methods of consuming cannabis. But ultimately I can't say smoke this blue dream before sex and it's going to do X because I'm not them. I don't know their body, their temperament, their, their body chemistry, uh, how their tolerance is, their mindset and setting. Um, But what I can do is I can help set them up for success by encouraging them to do their own fact finding keep a journal of what's working and how it works and create an environment that is conducive to pleasure and connection while also incorporating cannabis. So I'm, I'm kind of like a personal trainer for your sex life. And, but do you get feedback from them as well? Like uh, after the fact where they tell you, wow, this was really great for this, or this didn't work at all, or, you know, build yes. up a database in that way. Absolutely. I do hear back from them and we workshop what's going on. And, and wow, you know, one of the things I recommend quite a bit is Foria, which is, uh, they have a THC infused oil and they also have a CBD infused oil. And that is meant for people with vulvas and it helps decrease discomfort and increase pleasure. And I've heard from many, 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 many people with vulvas that that was a game changer for them, that they experienced pain-free penetration, that they experienced um, more greater access to orgasms, that they felt 
more enjoyment overall from um, sexual stimulation. And so that's been a kind of go-to staple in my recommendation. And is this bank. A, a, a Foria? Is what you yeah. And is this available through most most um, dispensaries? So they are available in California and Colorado uh, for their THC product, which is called Pleasure. They also have the suppositories that are uh, great for all bodies. And then they have an entire CBD line that is available uh, through their website and can be shipped anywhere in the country, which is very convenient if you want to have it come straight to your home. And is there a difference between the THC and CBD with regards to, you know, addressing these issues that people have? There is. There is some difference. Uh, THC is more of a vasodilator, so it brings more blood flow to the area, which uh, makes it especially good for enhancing sensation. CBD is more of an anti-inflammatory, so that helps with pain. I actually like to use both of their THC and CBD products together because why not? More is more after all. But um, their CBD formulation also has a couple of other stimulating botanicals in it in addition to CBD, which is a cannabinoid. Uh, It has ginger and cinnamon and peppermint, and those work together to create that kind of stimulating effect that mimics what THC would be doing. And what is it that makes someone become a sex therapist? Um, you know, it's not a common, or maybe it is, maybe more people do it than I'm, I'm aware of, but, uh, you know, is it a big, big profession? Are there lots of thousands and tens of thousands of sex therapists? And what, what kind of program does one go through to be qualified for that? Well, so I am a coach, not a therapist. Okay. Uh, therapists are licensed mental health professionals, which I am not. I do have a master's degree in philosophy, which has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm doing Everything right now. Everything to do with uh, it. My experience really came from an amalgamation of my career of getting early on, like right out of college, I was certified as a rape crisis counselor and domestic violence crisis counselor. I was trained as a victim advocate, so I'm very good at assessing clients and providing active listening and, and solutions oriented problem solving. I worked at Planned Parenthood. So I got a very robust knowledge of sexual health and reproductive health. And I also worked at a sex toy store. So I learned about toys and lubes and how to teach techniques to people who were curious how to, uh, help them figure out what is getting in the way of having great sex. And I've done many, many trainings and and things over the years. I just most recently got certified as a body sex facilitator with Betty Dodson, who is an iconic feminist from the 60s and 70s, who is still at 90 years old hosting these workshops. She was actually just on a Netflix show with Gwyneth Paltrow. And um, I learned how to facilitate these workshops where women will come to my home and they actually get naked in a group setting and they look at their bodies and they specifically look at their vulvas in the mirror and they name them and they really get a chance to understand their pleasure for their own sake, not as a a being pleasing to a partner or not as a sexual object, but really as a sexual subject. And so that's just, part of how I've learned how to do what I do. And were you always, as a, as a young person, open about sexuality? Because it's not an easy subject for people to talk about, certainly. It had been, you know, for men, I would say, probably more difficult than women. I don't know if you agree. 
I think it's difficult for everybody because of general societal shame that we put on bodies and the ways in which we do not empower children to have autonomy over their bodies just from an early age where it's like, go kiss Aunt Mildred because it's polite. And we don't realize that what you're telling a kid is they don't want to do that, but they have to do it because it's good manners. And so propriety trumps personal autonomy. And that's a very scary thing to inculcate in an early age. But for me, I was always the awkward one who talked about sex from middle school pretty much on. I started masturbating when I was five, if not earlier. And um, so that has been an ongoing thing. I also had trauma at an early age. So that shaped how I showed up in the world as a sexual being. Um, I was sexually assaulted when I was 13. And so I had to integrate that into my overall uh sexual narrative and, and come back from being a survivor. And, and I continue to this day to work through having PTSD and, and what it means to be a sexual being who has had trauma in my life. Yeah, I would imagine that's, that's not something you could easily, uh, you know, overlook, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, I've had uh, guests on who are working with psychedelics with the with the therapist you know with a trained therapist and addressing those issues that are you know deeply ingrained or if that's the right word but you know traumatic absolutely i am a big proponent of psychedelic therapy um i have seen it work for many people it's it's an area that i'm starting to get into myself and I still want to do a lot more training before I would start to, to speak on it with authority publicly, but I see it as a very promising treatment modality. And how do you feel like the medical profession? Are they open to your learning and research, or is this two separate worlds that they just do not cross? I have found um, a lot of medical professionals being very, very open to what I do. In fact, I spoke at the Cannabis Nurse Network Conference last year where I got to address a room of 200 nurses and talk about sex and cannabis from from my perspective and my work. And it was incredibly well-received. I've already been asked back to speak again this year. And a lot of nurses are not taught how to talk about sex with their patients. They are very nervous about it. They are uncomfortable. They feel disempowered. And so I really try to create a safe space for, for professionals to be able to learn more and empower them to be able to have these conversations with their patients. And I'm also working with uh, Harvard MD, uh, among others, to form a Sex and Cannabis Professionals Association. So yeah, I would say, I would say my work has been very well received by the medical okay. community. Do, do, you, do you know Peter Grinspoon? I do not believe I know Peter. Yeah, he'd be worth looking up. He's uh, going to be on my show. It hasn't aired yet, but uh, he is a Harvard uh, also-based doctor whose father was this uh, Lester Grinspoon, who is a famous uh, also Harvard doctor who wrote a book many years ago advocating cannabis. And he works you know, in this field. He's an advocate today for cannabis, and he's a, a medical professional in Harvard. It would be uh, probably a good idea for you to contact him at some point. He's a very interesting man. Yeah, definitely. So also, I wanted to talk about other drugs. I mean, I don't know, you know, so cannabis, because it has this legal or quasi-legal status in so many 
places. But there are other drugs as well that people have used, I don't know, you know, recreationally for, not for sex necessarily, but, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll. It always kind of all went together, right? And and one of those drugs, they do. cocaine, for example, which people have, you know, either said it the swear on it's great for sex or it's terrible for sex. Are you, uh, you know, speak about that at all, about other drugs that are out there that can enhance the experience? Um, I have found psychedelics to be an incredible sexual enhancer. Personally, I find cocaine to be problematic. I don't find that it's connective. I find that it's very disconnective, much like alcohol. Um, it's it's kind of a solid, solitary. Um, it, it's social, certainly, but it's not connective. Um, when I've been around people who are on cocaine, you know, no judgment. Everyone gets to do what they want to do, but that's it does not strike me as something that would add to intimacy or depth of connection. Um, it seems like much more of a party or get things done kind of, of drug and alcohol, much the same. Um, alcohol is very dissociative. It does not help you get in your body. It helps you escape your body. That's why they used to give it to soldiers when they were about to amputate a limb. <laughs> um, cause it gets you out of your body. And so I want people in their bodies and present and, fully able to, to engage with their partners on a number of levels, you know, physically, emotionally, energetically. Um, I've studied Tantra pretty extensively and that I find to be really a wonderful tool for deepening sexual connection with people. But yeah, not so much on cocaine. So did, were you an experimenter in your youth as well with, uh, you know, whether cannabis or other substances or did that come later? I did not use any drugs until college, actually grad school. Um, I drank a little bit in high school, like I imagine most high school students do, but I was very anti-cannabis because I was a child of, of, of dare culture where we were told just say no and drugs are bad and the people who do them are bad and it's not good. And so it wasn't until college and grad school when I was studying philosophy and I met a bunch of <laughs> philosophy students and professors who were uh, very enamored with cannabis. And I thought, oh, okay, this is, this is maybe not so bad. And even that, like, it was just cannabis until I moved to California. And I didn't even start experimenting with psychedelics until my late 20s. And, and I found that to be such a game changer. Since then, um, I've sat through three ayahuasca ceremonies, and that was really life changing. I've, I've used psilocybin mushrooms, and that's been really powerful. I've done LSD journeys, and that's been really powerful. So I'm definitely a psychedelic fan, but I, I prefer my, my medicine to come from plants, generally. Right, and it doesn't, uh, you know, with your experimentation with these psychedelics, it's not necessarily to make a sexual connection or to improve a sexual connection having to do with your practice, or does it? Um, For ayahuasca, it was very much a... a personal growth and, and understanding and integrating and, and seeing more of myself. But for the rest, the first time I did mushrooms, I had sex for like eight hours. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> I was, I'm a fan. That is, that is what I do on my birthday every year. Uh, my, my Have boyfriend and I go away together to go... some, <laughs> I was just joking, but I said you every on your birthday every year you have sex for eight hours, or you just try mushrooms. Oh, at least. <laughs> I mean, I have sex for eight hours, not on my birthday. Also, like <laughs> my my boyfriend and I 
we we joke that a quickie for us is less than an hour. Okay, well, you know, this is a very, uh, you know, kind of strange to hear somebody talking about things like this so openly. So I'm, st- uh, so I'm a little bit taken <laughs> I aback. I am not like most people. <laughs> no, you're not. Are your clients mostly men or women? I mean, I, I imagine it's women, but what, what difference is it between treating a man who has, you know, emotional connection issues or, you know, other sexually related or things that may get in the way of having, you know, good sex? Uh, is it very different for women or are we all the same? I think everyone is the same. Um, you know, I try not to gender generally. I, you know, I want to always be inclusive of, of trans folks and non-binary folks in addition to cisgender folks. And I find that most of my clients are cisgender women or couples uh, who are typically heterosexual couples. And they often have similar struggles with intimacy they just look a little bit different. Um, it's with people who are socialized masculine, you typically find a lot of reliance on porn as a standard for what sex is supposed to look like, feel like, be like. Um, with people who are socialized feminine, you typically see a lot of shame around pleasure and, and advocating for your pleasure as opposed to being a, a vehicle for someone else's pleasure. A lot of, a lot of, especially women I've worked with have a lot of baggage around feeling like they need to be pleasing to their partners to get, to have value. And so that looks that way, but most commonly with couples, I see desire discrepancy across the board where one partner and it it does not fall along gender lines, but one partner typically is more interested in sex than the other. And so how do they bridge that gap if they're in a monogamous relationship? If they're non-monogamous, that gets a lot easier. But if they're monogamous, how do you work with those constraints? Well, you mentioned pornography. Uh, so do you, are you against pornography? I... No, not at all. Actually, some of my dearest friends are porn stars. In the I sex think porn industry. is great. Yeah. Well, my concern with porn is that it's used as education when it should be considered no different than watching a sci-fi movie. You are watching professional <laughs> athletes who are actors and actresses on a very contained set. Like you cannot emulate that. The things that they do, and I've been on many porn sets, the things that they do behind the scenes to make it look the way that it does when you're streaming it on Pornhub, you just can't do that in real life. And so to hold yourself to that standard is damaging because you're setting yourself up to feel inadequate. And then my body doesn't look like that. I don't stay hard like that. I have hair in places that they don't have hair. My labia doesn't look like that. All of those things. My breasts sag. Well, I mean, that happens when you don't have implants. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, at the same time, it's so prevalent on the internet and it's accessible to, you know, everyone, young, young kids as well. So how, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what would you advise young people directly if they were, you know, happen to, to do, maybe you already do, you know, have a, go to a school and talk to teenagers because uh, one, um, you know, my son is just like graduating high school, but at some point uh, a few years ago, his principal said, you know, said, well, you know, the first encounter that students have today is with pornography. Their first encounter Mm -hmm. with sex comes through pornography. Sure. I do not go to schools uh, specifically because I don't work with people under 18 
unless their parents were to hire me specifically. And that's purely because of legal reasons and because largely parents are a pain in the ass and are very puritanical about what their kids have access to and are uncomfortable talking to their kids about sex or having their kids be exposed to, to sexuality. And so I try to address the parents. I, and I talk to kids in college. That's, that's about as young as I'll go is college age. And I do a lot of college presentations, but mostly I talk to parents and I say, listen, do you want your kids learning from porn? Or do you want to be the one to tell them your body is yours? You have a right to consent, creating a culture of consent in the home from an early age, using proper names to talk about genitals and not PP and hoo-ha and, and encouraging masturbation behind closed doors with privacy, wash your hands before and after, you know, like, Putting good habits in from an early age, I think, is important and is a parental responsibility. But I'm not trying to raise your kid for you. <laughs> well, that's um, that's interesting advice, though. That's good advice, I think. One of the things that's coming up on the horizon is Valentine's Day. It's, it must be yeah. a big day for you, the you know, the love day. But at the same time, it creates a lot of problems, doesn't it, for people, whether they don't have a partner on Valentine's Day. There's so much pressure to, you know, what am I going to do or what am I going to get? And do we have to have sex because it's Valentine's Day? And what if we don't? And what if one partner wants to and the other doesn't, et cetera, and so forth? How do you approach that day or is, is it something that comes up? It definitely comes up. Valentine's Day is my busiest time of year for sure. Really? And Honestly, what I tell people is if Valentine's Day is the only day of the year that you're thinking about how to be thoughtful or romantic or sensual with your partner, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I, I think Valentine's Day is a day like any other. I think it's certainly if you have someone and you want to share something special with them because there's kind of a, a prescribed time and space for it, go for it. But I would discourage folks from putting too much pressure on that holiday. It's just another day. And, and I would really encourage them to, to spend that time and energy thinking about how they can be a really present, loving, respectful, supportive partner year round and not just one day a year. And for people who are single, that's a great day to be with your friends or do something that you enjoy or practice self care and celebrate loving yourself. Cause I really believe whether you're single or partnered, you have to love yourself first. And, and it's a process. And it's, you know, not to say that you have to love yourself before you can find another person, because lots of people are still working on that. But, but you have to at least prioritize loving yourself and see that as something that is a goal and something that you're working toward. And whether that means getting therapy or doing, you know, movement classes that make you feel sexy or, or dressing up in an outfit that makes you feel good or whatever, but just doing things to take care of your body, even just paying your bills on time, like <laughs> be a good grown up and, and reduce stress in your life, like create a life for yourself that you don't have to escape from. That is my, my invitation to the world. And w when you say Valentine's day is your biggest day, what does that mean that you, you have calls or personal you know, people contacting you for that day or around that day? What happens? Around that day, I have talks and workshops scheduled for a couple of weeks leading up and then usually a week or so after where people want me to come speak or they want to book a session with me because it's Valentine's Day. They're thinking about it. They want to know how to make things special for their sweetie or 
Um, I get a lot of requests for media articles around them, either interviews or having me write things for various platforms about love and connection and Valentine's Day. So it's, it's very much a consumer holiday. And, you know, like it or not, we live in a capital, capitalist society. So you got to kind of capitalize on it. <laughs> Right. There's, you know, there's some uh, evidence or at least research that suggests that there's a connection between a lower sperm count and cannabis. Is that something that you've ever encountered or the subject come up at all? The subject comes up. The studies are very conflicted around that because I've seen other studies that suggest that birth rates go up in states that have access to cannabis. So it's um, it's not something I would stress about, depending on how much you're using. And if that's a concern for you, you know, sperm banks are always an option. You can freeze it, and then you can always get it later. Okay, so it's an issue, but you're not uh, quite sure where where it sits on the on the spectrum of important things to worry There's about. There's very conflicting yeah. studies about how it impacts sperm count. And so I think until we have more firm science, it's, if that's a priority for you, maybe make some plans to, to try to preserve the sperm. And if that's not like for me, I am child free for life. So my boyfriend's most appealing quality when we first met was when he told me he had a vasectomy. So <laughs> I, it's not an area I spend a lot of time thinking about, to be honest. <laughs> And, you know, finally, uh, sex in the age of Trump, uh, you know, there's the stress levels out there are, are must be pretty high. I know they are for me. And, you know, anytime you sort of yeah. dip into Twitter or watch TV, you suddenly get drawn into all of that. Has, have you seen that come up as in your practice? Is that something that's affecting people on the sexual side? It is affecting people profoundly, and myself included. From the night, election night, I remember like chain-smoking joints as I watched <laughs> the election results come in, growing more and more dejected and, and in deep despair about what was happening. And yeah, it, it impacts because stress is a pleasure killer. That's real. And there is a very small percentage of the population that stress actually increases their arousal and desire, but it's, it's a small percentage. Most people, it makes it very difficult. And so the nice thing about cannabis is it helps you get out of your head and into your body. And so if you've had a particularly rough day or week or, you know, past three years in the news cycle, having something that can take your mind off it for a little while helps because one of the things that, that cannabis can do is impact short-term memory. And so not that you can forget that the world's on fire because it's really hard to do that, but you can kind of at least get down to a manageable stress level that you can be present with yourself or your partner and, and find some joy in that. Uh, because yeah, the world is a mess right now and it's a very, very scary time. And especially for people who are queer, people of color, like people who are disabled, it's, it's really it's life and death. And, and so it is understandable that with this president in office, people are not feeling particularly sexual. So if cannabis can help, I encourage folks to, to uh, go and use that as a, as a possible coping mechanism. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Ashley Manta. It's been enlightening talking with you, and I'd actually say it's it's kind of interesting for me who doesn't have these conversations very often, and I find it very um, relaxing <laughs> to talk about. Wonderful. I, I'm <laughs> it's de-stressing to just to talk I, about. My goal is to make people feel more comfortable with sexuality. <laughs> Great. Congratulations. So. You've done it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash Light Culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs> <laughs>